0: Hello and welcome to Save That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students and researchers from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. This year's theme is power in all its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. I'm Anna Matani and I'm a third year English student. Today I'm interviewing Joe Cribb, a numismatist who is Keeper of Coins and Medals for the British Museum from 2003 to 2010, President of the Royal Numismatic Society and Secretary-General for the Oriental Numismatic Society for seven years. His work centres on Asian coinage, specifically of the Kushan Empire. Hello Joe, starting off with kind of what exactly a numismatist is.
1: Basically, I do research on coins and other monetary objects. And so I'm working both as a historian of of monetary systems, but also using coins to look at religious and political history. Um, And my range is from uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, across to Japan, and south to Cambodia, Indonesia. It, you know, it's most parts of Asia. And my most of my work is on the ancient period, but I also dabble in later things. So recently, I've been looking at Japanese coin collecting in the 18th century coins in in uh, Cambodia and how coinage began there and. How it developed over the sort of early modern period.
0: A lot of your work seems, even though you are doing some kind of modern work, mm. a lot of it seems focused on quite ancient coinage. Mm. I I was wondering if you could talk slightly about how currency existed and was standardised before the nation state.
1: Well, the the um, coin coinage begins quite late in the history of money. Um, The earliest evidence we have of monetary transactions are in cuneiform texts, hieroglyphs from Egypt, and early Chinese um, inscriptions. And in each of those cases, monetary transactions take place without coin. So in in ancient Mesopotamia, it's weighed amounts of silver. Um, In ancient Egypt, weighed amounts of copper. And in early China, it's uh, sheltz, uh, seashells, carry shells. So the coinage came along both in sort of Western Asia and also in Eastern Asia in about 600 BC. And in both cases, it came into being in, in states that already existed. There are surely periods before states existed, but they didn't write things down. So it's very difficult to know what exactly happened, we can make conjectures using sort of pre-urban societies that have survived into more recent times. So we can sort of turn to ethnography and anthropology to look at how payments are made in societies that um, are still at a um, sort of level of of, um, agriculturalists without towns, um, hunter-gatherers, and so forth, um, and no contact with um, coinage um, in, coming from, from uh, Western powers. Um, and there we see things very similar to what was is recorded in early Mesopotamian and Chinese and Egyptian texts, that there are certain goods that are selected to make payments and the payments are generally not commercial payments but they're payments um, such as blood money um, and um, either uh, dowry or bride price payments where the value of what's demanded is not easily measurable sometimes it's you know if, if the people have metal then sometimes it's metal but it can be um, livestock can be food can be cloth all sorts of different examples and quite often they you know when such societies do encounter coinage coming from western colonization uh, sort of imperial endeavors they retain their sort of traditional means of payments for the sort of transactions that they were made for but at the same time, in transactions with the foreigners, they'll use the use the foreign foreign money.
0: So, like it's, a uh, parallel currency existing between this material. Yes,
1: yeah, and sometimes they, they they even develop exchange rates between their own money and the foreigners' money.
0: How would you sort of conceptualise the shift from these tangible forms of money and currency? Into metals and physical coinage.
1: Well, in in early Mesopotamia, that we have um, the surviving law codes which stipulate payments, um, and also cuneiform um, documents that record payments. And it does it does definitely seem to be um, the state which is sort of imposing. Um, specific values on on specific activities and in early Mesopotamian laws quite often things that involve somebody working for somebody else and so then they're paid in the food they need to eat while they're working for them but if they've cut off somebody's nose or killed somebody then the the amount is specified in silver by weight. It, it seems as though the sort of the, the use of precious metals by weight, which is what the basis for coinage at to later date, is something that's heavily regulated by the state. The state is also, from ancient Mesopotamia, we have weights, for presumably used for weighing silver, which I have inscriptions on them that suggest that they are being made by the temple, you know, whatever is the power there behind. So it could be a king, it could be a temple. The state is sort of comes in and creates a sort of regulatory apparatus, which turns what had been previously been socially regulated systems into into formalized monetary systems.
0: With this idea of temples or rulers and the different inscriptions that we have on coins, what stories do you think we can gather from looking at these inscriptions and how they represented? Culture.
1: In China, most of our evidence comes from the written histories, and the earliest ones that talk about money are coming about the same time as coinage begins, and they're, they're mostly um, sort of talking about how to control the monetary system. You know, should coins be large? Could, should they be small? Um, who should make them? Those sort of questions. And so we don't get quite so much depth about the social activity as we do in Mesopotamia but when coins begin in western Asia it's in western Turkey in the uh, kingdom of Lydia and we we have a couple of Greek sources that talk about such things so Herodotus says coins are invented in in Lydia and certainly the first coins we know of in, in the west are in that area but we don't have any real social socially informative documents relating to that at all there's almost a gap between the the sort of mesopotamian texts and the emergence of coinage you know it's very clear that weighed amounts of metal are being used but it's only when we get coins that we see see any sort of formalized structure there's lots of gaps in what we know quite interesting what you know what gets recorded if you go through all the greek literature and look to, to see what's said about money you get aristotle aristotle and plato talking about money, and sort of brief mentions in earlier sources.
0: Because it's such a big part of our day-to-day lives, it passes without notice a lot of time. And that made me think of a quote. It was, the extent of the power of money is the extent of my power. It is the visible divinity, Karl Marx. Mm. I wonder if you kind of have anything to say about how the visible divinity that Marx attributes to money contrasts with the invisible day-to-day commodification of money and how its significance alone is often ignored.
1: Well, I think the you know money operates in lots of different ways and at many different levels. So you know so if you ask an economist to talk about money, they rarely talk about coins and banknotes, which is how we often encounter it in our daily lives and they will come up with explanations of money that are quite distant from the everyday practice. As a numismatist, my engagement with it is very much about the objects. And so my perspective is, is at the other end of the extreme. When people handle coins and banknotes, they very rarely look at them. They just get a glimpse. You make the payment on the basis of the size and the colour of the pieces that you're spending. You don't look at them and say, does it say 10p or does it say 50p? You know, you 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 you're just used to the the shaped one is the fifty p and the uh, round one is the ten. You know, the, that, that's that's how how you engage with these objects. And the same with banknotes. It's about the colour and the size. You don't look to read. This is a five pound note, and it's guaranteed by the Bank of England. So a lot of what I'm engaged with sails past the average person, and it's only coin collecting and. Small children who who are, can be quite uh, engaged with the different pictures on them, but the rest of us are just as long as we've got them and we can spend them. That's that's it.
0: Yeah. So, do you think we overstate kind of the importance of who is figured on on our money? I'm, I'm thinking of Austin on the polymer ten pound note, or how mm. the Hamilton musical stopped VS mm. government from changing. Alexander Hamilton from the ten pounds yeah. U.S. note.
1: Yeah, the, the, there's, quite, there's a big sort of movement in in the states to put replace Hamilton with um, um, a, a woman. And you know, there was a lot of debate. You know, uh, Jane Austen appearing on the notes. If people stop and think about it, it you know, it, uh, there there is significance in these images. You know that you know if you like. If the, if the banknotes are a window on the British state, then the, the British state is is a very male dominated state, um, and you know getting them to choose a woman to represent Britain, you know even though at that time we had a female head of state, it's a, just a, an imaginary figurehead that the state has um, with with no power whatsoever. The you know the putting of a series of men on the banknotes is an indication of the way the government mindset works.
0: The way we see money and the images we put on them uphold certain systems of power.
1: Yes, yeah. I think, you know, that the the images are there to articulate the power of the, the state and of the Bank of England to issue money. The old fifty pence pieces. If you were looking at a historian, you know, OK, so this is the head of state. Well, we know for a fact that it's just a figurehead. And then you look at the back and you've got this woman sitting on a rock with a shield and a, and a trident and a lion. You know, If you're looking at ancient coins, you might think, oh, well, that's because they were familiar with lions. Well, there, the lion is not there as a piece of wildlife. It's a heraldic symbol of British monarchy and the personification of Britain first appears on British coins in the 17th century. She also appeared on Roman coins as a symbol of the conquest of Britain, you know, so you can interpret that sim- that symbolism historically, but if you take it out of context, it's very difficult to understand what on earth it means.
0: For anyone who's had the opportunity to look at the cushioned coins, you notice defamation practice seems to be evident in representations of the emperors whereas current coins like you mentioned queen lisbeth focus on authenticity on representing a ruler as yeah. true to life as they can how much of style was a practical necessity for these older coins and how much of it was a metaphorical and artistic choice
1: Yes, I think one can say it's only in Europe in the uh, late 15th, early 16th century that you start to actually see um, artistic representation that is attempting to create some sort of realism. Before that, it, it, it's the, the images on coins are representations, but representations of the authority of the person, and not necessarily of the, the reality of, of their image. The most famous Kushan king is Kanishka the He's known through Buddhist texts and many inscriptions. And on most of his coins, he's shown with a large beard. But we also have coins of him showing him without a beard and with sideburns and a mustache. And his great grandfather's coins show somebody with a mustache um, and his successors coins show somebody with moustache and sideburns so you know what what is the reality of how this king looked did he ever actually have a beard and why has he got why is he shown with a beard it's possible that this is because he comes from a a, a sort of the context of a broad iranian culture and in iran kings are normally shown with beards so it's possible that his beard is just an indication of his kingship and his Iranian culture rather than a, a real representation of him. And his successor, his successor is shown as a sort of fairly, you know, 50, 60 year old man in his first issue. And then in his next issue, he's shown as though he's about 20. And then in the following issue, um, he's looking 30 to 40 year old. There's no attempt at a real image person. It's it's a it's a state in image of the ruler of the state um, and you know at the moment in in the british library there's a big exhibition on alexander we have this sort of image of what alexander looks like but if you got the thousands of coins which show alexander that survive and look at the range of the different ways he looks you'll see that what we have is a sort of conceptual image of alexander and not really of Alexander the Great. You know, we can think we know what Alexander the Great looked like by looking at his coins, but we're looking at the coins that normally get published because they're the nicest example, not the the whole range of what the image looks like. Before the Renaissance, the European Renaissance, we didn't really have realistic representations of kings or queens on coins.
0: So it's much more reliant on metaphor, um, I know yeah, you- I
1: mean, it's, it's, a, it's a visual metaphor for the state. Yeah. One is allowed to think about visual metaphors, I think. A metaphor is a linguistic device, and it's a way of conveying uh, something about what is in front of you or what's, what's happening through terms that you immediately understand. So visual metaphors operate in the same way. We have the state and the state embodied in the king so in order to visualize it, you use a, a device that allows you to immediately understand it, which is a, a picture. And a picture is never the person. All imagery is, is metaphorical. Lang- all language is metaphorical. You know, I, I'm busy writing coin catalogs. They are not coins, they, but they show you what the coin, you know, they, te- they inform you about the coins by putting them in a form that you can comprehend. Um, but they are not. The real coins and they don't you know the monetary system is not what you're seeing what you're seeing is a book and a, a book that's designed to help you understand um, so so that's sort of because it, it is also a metaphor
0: i mean you you do use derrida a lot though in kind of in in your addresses to the royal pneumatic society and also in your brief for your upcoming lecture do you think understanding the structures of language and of imagery is essential to numismatic study and to what it can bring to history?
1: I think it, it certainly helps a lot to have some awareness of how language works and the impact of language. You know, Most of my communication uh, about coins is in writing and just... The shaping of sentences and the, the, the vocabulary you use have an impact on what you know what you're trying to communicate. You know, so in, in numismatics, there are a lot of technical terms. So the word type isn't used in the way that it's normally used in, in English. It means the design on a coin and it's sort of a conventional numismatic term. And you know, so when using the word type. In a numismatic article, I have to be quite careful about how I'm using it. So it's this type of coin, but that has completely different meaning to a numism- numismatist than it does to a, in an, in an ordinary context. So it's uh, so one has to think about how language works, and also I think um, it's, it, it, it's the uh, formation of a text is also um, part of the process by which one Communicates, and so one of the ideas that um, I got uh, from Foucault is about the way the creation that you're using to communicate stands in between you and the reality of what you're talking about and you know so art historians talk about oh this is a Rembrandt well you know a a Rembrandt is um, not what you're talking about. You know, Rembrandt is a person, but you still just call it a Rembrandt. And that's a sort of metaphor that you're using an associative uh, concept to describe a piece of work. And the same, you know, when I say a Kushan coin, um, a Kushan coin is um, is not, it, it, it's a strange sort of reality. You know, this is a coin being used in Afghanistan and Pakistan and in India in the early centuries AD. And I add the word Kushan to it because the ruling dynasty were, were the Kushans. You know, the Kushans aren't; a, it isn't a state. It's not a people. It's the dynasty. Um, you know, so it's like calling a coin a Tudor coin. Most people who use English will understand what you mean, but it's not. It's not a, a, a very accurate description of the object. It's a sort of key. It's a connected object. So you, you're one One's um, use of language you know is is something one has to watch very carefully in, in all contexts. But, I mean to, to me that's you know part part of the the sort of postmodern movement is is about um, being aware of such things. and I think i suppose right putting coin the study of coins into the context of metaphor is. Uh, my attempt to, to sort of suggest to other numismatists that they need to think more about the process that they're carrying out and how unconsciously they are creating a history, um, quite often without actually thinking about the process of, of creating it. You, know, you could describe it as a bit of a mission. But it's, but it's certainly something that uh, um, took me a long time to come to. Turn. You know, I've been studying coins for twenty or thirty years before I started to really stand back and think about what exactly was going on and how I was doing it and why I was doing it.
0: Money and power become so tied together that it's almost a cliche. I mean, you know, we conceptualize our actions through the lens of productivity. We kind of idolize. The wealthy and even our superheroes seem to be defined by their extensive wealth. You know, your Batmans, your Ironmans. I suppose within that idea of metaphor and language, how much power do you think we can attribute to money in its physical form?
1: Mm. Well, you could say it has it has no power itself. It, you know this, I mean this is this is what metaphor is doing is that it's personifying uh, in an inanimate object. Um, and the, it's the, the power rests with the people who create money and the people who use money. Um, and so you know, somebody with a lot of money has can say, you could say they have a lot of power because they have the ability to to exercise power. You know, so now in in the contemporary world we, we can see you know what previ- where previously money was controlled by states we can see that banks and multinationals are exercising power um, which is sort of overriding the state um, and the reason it, they're able to do that is because they've got more money than the rest of us so it, it's a sort of the ownership of money and the production of money are, are where the power lies when you when you have no money you feel powerless it's uh, you know it's, it's not it's not the money itself that's powerful it's the, it's the ownership of it so mon- money is a sort of that you know that's why i sort of thinking of it as a metaphor it's a metaphor for that power you know mon- money is a sort of manifestation of the value that you've managed to accrue and having that value Enables you to to exercise power so much so money sort of you know it's, it it is the metaphor that stands between us and power. I spent fifty odd years studying it, you know, to to realise that it actually is a very trivial thing in reality. There's a current sort of trend going on to you know you, if you go into a, a shop and you offer them some money, you know. Some, some of the money that's been produced by the British state um, it will be declined because they only take money that is regulated by a bank or, or a um, credit card company um, you know so so you're you're, um, you're immediately there's a shift in the power that's going on that the power to to control what you're doing is' being handed over by the state to these um, non-state uh, or entities and not only if I have a five pound note in my pocket nobody knows where I got it from and nobody knows what I'm going to do with it and if I do something with it there's no record of me having done it you know if, you're, if, if you're, your employee puts your money into your into your bank your bank knows where it came from it knows it's gone to you you then spend it with a, with a um, bank card or a credit card it knows who you've paid it to, and it knows what you've bought. By using credit cards, we are de anonymizing money. Whereas, in some ways, one of the magic things about coins and banknotes is that they are anonymous. If you're doing that in Tesco's and you use a loyalty card as well, then you know, not only do they know that you've got that much money to spend, they also know that you're um, what you're buying. And they'll send you they'll send you advertising that reflects what you buy and if you don't use your card for a while they'll start sending you um uh, offers to uh, encourage you to spend it's um interesting how you know we we uh, i suppose we adopt coinage because of its convenience and give power to the state that issues it um and now we 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 use credit cards and debit cards, etc., for convenience. And again, we're giving power to these entities. Um, so I think uh, sort of how power operates in the reality of our everyday lives today.
0: Yeah, with this shift towards electronic currencies and alternative money forms, I'm thinking mm. Bitcoin, NFTs, mm.
1: Yeah, who are you giving if you if you've got bitcoins who are you giving the power to exactly. certainly not certainly not to yourself uh, i think uh, china uh, and india are trying to create digital forms of mon- digital money um and again you can see you know this is this is the state um trying to wrest back power from the from the banks and the um, credit companies um and by using digital money instead of actual coins and banknotes, then the state will get to know all these things about you. That's the, um, um, the uh, banks and credit card companies. You know. Really cynical, you can think this is this is uh, um, just another form of big brother, it's uh, controlling society. Um, I mean, I certainly think if, if one uses uh, digital media and um buys things online you can see just how controlling these companies are in interesting development that uh, certainly has taken place during my lifetime you know when i was a child none of these things existed
0: how so, do you think numismatics? sorry
1: it, numismatic.
0: numismatics will evolve because of these new forms and and what yeah. will future numismatics mm. say about the way we function
1: yeah I, I, as a curator i was very keen that we acquire the physical evidence of what's going on um, you know so um you know think th- it's it's there's lots of um, things that are a bit like money that we encounter um so that, the, the um uh, sort of the, in, in, in the british museum we we acquired lots of credit cards um, both from uh, sort of sample cards from from banks but also um you know sort we begged them off members of staff and things like that and then add to that you know there, were, there was a period when you had to have a card to use a telephone which looked like a a, a Bit like a credit card, you know. I've got, I've got a, you know, because I'm so old, I've got a a freedom pass for transport in London. That also looks like a credit card, Um, and now my pass to get into the British Museum looks like a credit card. You know, so there's this sort of, we're using the the metaphor of of money to to sort of spread it to other things that have some monetary connection or some um sort of security connection you know so you, you you want to create the impression that these things are secure so you make them look like money which is secure and through the post you know you you receive adverts that look like checks um and you um you get sent credit card shaped things that uh, um are sort of designed to to um, sort of bring attention to something um and make you think it's to do with money. Um and so all that sort of material we you know we we um collected in in the British Museum. Um and we also um collect um you know if you if you um go for a car wash you use a, you can you are know, given a you buy a token you go and put it in the machine. so we've got examples of that as i think it's tesco's if you buy stuff in tesco's give you a plastic disc which you then put into a slot to choose which charity you want them to donate money to so you know that that looks like a coin it's a piece of plastic but looks like a coin Um, and, and and so on there's you know there's lots of things that are going on in the world that are sort of Sort of going out from money, um, and so trying trying to make sure that there's a record of such things, and so all those things, you know, sort of create a history of the way money is behaving um, and thought of in, in the late twentieth, early twenty first century. Um, so that so that we're we're still accumulating material for historical research um, in in the museum. Um, I think at the moment, I don't see any diminution of coins and banknotes, but I'm, I'm sure that it will gradually come about. You, know, you, don't, you, you no longer spend uh, money directly on, on transport in London. Um, and there is this shift going on, but I think it's quite a sl- long process. And most numismatists study the past, So uh, there's still plenty of um, what was made and used in the past and people continue to find it as well, you know, dig it up out of the ground.
0: Actually, I wanted to turn towards this kind of abundance of ancient coinage that's being found and specifically thinking about your position as keeper of coins and medals at the British Museum for seven years. With recent upheavals in how we understand museums and what counts as cultural property, how exactly are approaches to coinage changing compared to other historical items?
1: Yeah, well, I think I would say as a general rule, uh, museums in the UK are no longer acquiring unprovenanced material uh, from outside of the United Kingdom. I mean, obviously, if, if somebody acquires on their holiday a, a Chinese coin from the 1990s, then nobody's going to think of that as cultural heritage. It will become cultural, cultural heritage, but it's not something that's so, you know, so acquiring that sort of material doesn't create any problems. And I think the same with medals are seen as art, art objects. And so, again, they're, you know, they're, generally seen in a slightly different way to coins i'd say in until the uk signed the unesco convention we were acquiring uh, coins through the coin trade from from india from china um, but the the british museum no longer does no longer does that um, and i say it's much the same for most of the other museums in the uk so uh, i think heritage is very political and i think that sometimes the politics gets in the way of the preservation of it, of heritage and because many of the coins that are found immediately go into the to the, the marketplace and get moved around the world we, we regularly see very common coins turning up all over the world that are found in, in, say, for India, for example. And those coins are normally end up in the hands of coin collectors. And so their provenance is lost and the associations they have are lost. So that the, if you like, the heritage they represent is, is damaged by that trade. But these objects are so trivial that the um, institutions in India don't pay any attention to it at all. So, in some ways, they're, they're not looking after their heritage. Um, and so that heritage gets dispersed. And so, how to, how to preserve that is quite a challenge. You know, obviously, if something is very valuable, then a lot of effort is put into preserving it in, the, in its place of origin. But when it's very trivial things, you know, the, the a Chinese coin from 2000 years ago is worth about two or three pounds, you know, and nobody's gonna pay any attention to where it came from or what it is. It's, it, you know, it is, but when a large group of such coins are found together, that gives you a lot of information. And if all that happens is that those get sold into the trade, that, that sort of information about where it was found and how it was found is gone. And so you know the UK, the u k has been very vanguard my colleagues at the British Museum initiated okay. the portable antiquities scheme um and through that scheme, we now have very detailed records of what's being found in this country and the you know, the context, the circumstance and so one can do serious research using that material, and it's all available digitally and its value is greatly enhanced. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a coin trade, but it means that it gets documented um, as it's found. So the trivial things are, are problematic in this, in this um, uh, arena. But um, you know, I, my, my philosophy throughout my career, and, and you know, I continue it now, is, is to work with people in, in the countries where the material I study is found and um, to encourage them to, to document as much as they can um, and to uh, bring the material they've got to the awareness of, of the authorities. But if, you know, in, in, in some countries, if you declare that you found something, um, the, the response is more likely to be punitive than to, to preserve the, um, uh, the data. Um, so it's, it's a, it, it is a, a, a very fraught subject. Um, and uh, one one wants to see um the, the sort of system that's been set up in the UK um extended to elsewhere you know, and to make sure that um, that heritage is not lost you know, because uh, coins are part of everyday life and and state activity, and and by recording them, you can get some sense of, of the history of the past. And certainly, for the Kushans, coins play a, a very big part in in understanding the history of of that of that uh, kingdom. So it's uh, you know, one of one of the main drivers for studying them is studying their coins, is because so much information can be extracted from
0: them. Do you think that coins then provide a more ethical way of conceptualizing museums and of sharing culture across nations being both so trivial and so defining
1: well i think the certainly certainly um the connections that i have around the world through the the study of coins is an important contributor to to the study of of the past but you know coins are just one aspect of the past In um, you know in some some cultures coins have a very low contribution to make in others they have a very big contribution to make and you know i think you know institutions like the british museum you know have a responsibility to both the objects that they look after but also to the cultures that are represented in those uh, collections so One of the things I paid close attention to was finding money to enable scholars from India and Pakistan um, and China to come to to the British Museum to look at the collections that are there. If if you wanted to look at Indian coins in Indian museums, you would only be able to see what's on display. Um, So what we can do in the British Museum is enable people to work directly with the collection. So in, in the British Museum there are tens of thousands of coins from the Indian subcontinent because of past colonial collecting, but we can make those available to, to Indian scholars who, who, in India, have difficulty accessing such material. You know, I've, I felt it was important to find ways to enable them you know, to come and come and see the collections.
0: Final question, I swear. Um, just based on what you said, what role do coins have in colonisation?
1: Yeah, that's quite interesting, I mean, because coin collecting is part of more, more the imperial activity of the British government uh, than the colonial, um, you know. So you know, what, what what we have acquired in the British Museum was was largely through members of the East India Company and then of the British Empire, trying to understand the history of the region, collecting coins as, as a means of doing that and then when they um stopped working and they came back to to England then their collections became part of the British Museum collection but there's also the the other side of it is the imposition by colonial powers imperial powers of western monetary systems on other parts of the world if you you know if you take china china um, had its own, own long standing monetary tradition but uh, as soon as there was commerce with the West, you know, th- th- through, through the um, Spanish bullion fleets going to the Philippines, through the British, the Dutch, the Portuguese, um, uh, establishing trading settlements in, 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 around China and Japan, um, they brought with them Western coins and um, China had a big thirst for silver not many silver resources in China and so silver became very widely used in monetary transactions and most of it was coming from the uh, Americas via via Spanish, British, Dutch, Portuguese ships and that initiated a process that led in the late 19th century to China adopting a western-style coinage and so in China now if you encounter coins, they are just like the coins we have. There are different designs on them, but they're essentially Western coins. And it's, you know, in India, it's quite um, an interesting thing that when the, when the British arrived in India, they tried to introduce Western style coins and found that nobody wanted them. And so they had to start making their own versions of the Indian coins. And it took, until the 1830s before the british control was sufficient to shift the designs on those coins to western designs and but they still used the currency system that was in india so you know so although they they were western style coins with royal portraits on made by machines it was still rupees which is the sort of traditional indian currency so there's a sort of Different, different mechanisms wherever, you know, wherever empire and colonization took place. And if you, if you look at Australia, all the coins issued in Australia are Western coins because there was no sort of traditional coinage system there. Even monetary transactions were very, very limited, and so colonization there brought, if you know, like, the benefits if you like to call them those, of having a Western monetary system. But uh, almost everywhere that Western powers colonized or created empires the 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 interactions between how things were before they arrived and how things that were after they arrived created different monetary contexts you know I I find it quite a fascinating topic that interaction certainly you know I've written about it in in relation to Cambodia and uh, Hong Kong and it's um something that you know every time i look at it it's sort of i get very engaged with it as a topic because it is it is uh, um there's so much variety in the way it happens
0: thank you so much for taking time to talk with us
1: that's right it's a pleasure it's a pleasure thank you
0: make sure to follow the cambridge festival on facebook twitter instagram and youtube for more fascinating events and follow the say that again slowly podcast for more conversations with this year's experts on the theme of power in all its forms thanks for listening